You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully, everyone had a great weekend. And depending on if you're listening to this after the Super Bowl or on Monday morning, hopefully you had a great Super Bowl party. I am the kind of guy who likes to not even sit down to watch the game. I just kind of hover over all the food and pick at it and eat it until my stomach is either full and I'm very uncomfortable or uh, it's time to leave. And that's kind of how I celebrate Super Bowl Sunday. And it's with food and not necessarily about the game because to be honest with you I could care less of the outcome of the Super Bowl now what are we going to talk about today today I got the guys from Land and Legacy on the podcast right you guys know the Land and Legacy podcast it's on this same RSS feed it's on the Sportsman's Nation podcast network and um, today I talk with Adam Keith and Matt Dye and we discuss the topic of can money buy big bucks and it's kind of in addition to a conversation that I had on Facebook with many of you uh, I posted the comment I I believe it was something along the lines of you know if I gave you a thousand acres and fifteen thousand dollars annually for habitat improvement in Iowa do you feel that you could harvest a Boone and Crockett buck on it in multiple years in a row and we talk about that today we talk about can money buy big bucks and if you throw a lot of money on a to a farm will it get you giant deer like what you see on the television shows and uh, again that's what we talk about today so I'm I was excited to have this BS session with the land and legacy guys Uh, it was a it was an eye opener because I wanted them on the show because they have a, they actually know what it takes to get deer to stay on pieces of property as far as nutrition, genetics, um, what it takes to actually grow uh, and hold big deer on a farm and uh, because of their uh, habitat improvement background as well as 
you know, we, we also discuss the equation of a big buck. So what plus what plus what plus what equals big deer? And uh, just a, a very fun, lighthearted conversation that, uh, you know, wanna wanted to spark some additional conversation on it and uh, on all the social media, right? Whether that's Facebook or Instagram. When I post this, please, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on uh, the topic as well. Um, so that's what we talk about today. I'll keep this short because the the podcast itself runs longer than normal uh, because we do cover a lot of different topics in this podcast. And uh, I just want to make sure we get through absolutely everything. Commercial today, Ozonics, right? You guys know that I am a huge believer in ozone technology, right? From in the field applications, like the ozonic, what the ozonics does, right? You're hanging it in the tree, and all the ozone is covering your scent downwind, right? Uh, you guys know that I am a huge believer in that, and I just feel more comfortable in the tree with that. It allows me to have more opportunities because that deer that do come in downwind to me uh, don't bust me as much as the past and more opportunities equals more opportunities when you have more deer inside shooting range you're going to have more opportunities to harvest uh, the animal of your desire whether that's you know a doe a yearling buck whatever it is your goal is the more opportunity you have at deer the more opportunity you have to you know complete your goal so a uh, huge fan of ozonics and then the out of the tree applications as well like the ozone closet where i can put my unit in this closet i can dry wash all of my clothes kill all the bacteria all over my hunting gear and uh, i feel you know i feel confident going into the timber with you know with an ozonics and what it what it can do for me uh, from the scent elimination side of things as well as it allows me to be a little bit more aggressive in the strategy department when i'm cutting the wind very hard trying to be in that position where if that wind shifts just a little bit there's a potential that uh you know that ozone is blowing right into the wind so uh, it allows me to be a little bit more aggressive and uh I don't know. I just feel very confident when I use that product, and uh, I've seen nothing but good things uh, with it. So if uh, you want to find out more information, go to ozonicshunting.com, and you need to enter the discount code 9FINGERS. That's the number 9, followed by the word FINGERS, 17, 9FINGERS, 17, no spaces, and you will be able to save $75 off of all orders over $400. Now that's a very good discount and um, please go take advantage of it and support this company because they support this podcast. So without further ado, without further ado, let's get into today's, I'm just going to call it, it's a, it's a very big BS session with the guys from Land and Legacy. Can money buy big bucks? All right, everybody, welcome back to the podcast, and today I have some fellow Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, I don't know, are you guys alum, or what's the uh, what's the term, we're on the same network, but... Veterans, veterans. old-timers, yeah, yeah old-timers, I, I like that. You, the Nine Figure Chronicles and the Land and Legacy were the first two 
podcasts on the Sportsman's Nation. Yeah, we're the elders. The o- OGs, original gangsters. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that makes you, that, that's a little bit intimidating, right? So it's, oh you my have, God. You so, have street cred right off the right out the gate, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm here with Matt Dye and Adam Keith, and they are the Land and Legacy podcast. And if you've heard this podcast, the Nine Finger Chronicles, I'm sure by now you've heard the Land and Legacy podcast. And these guys are the authority when it comes to Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I got to I got to build you up so like the people who listen think, "Hey, these guys really know what they're talking about." Yeah, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. Okay. So we got the Land and Legacy guys and their podcast obviously revolves around habitat and, you know, habitat improvement and all that good stuff. And that's why we have uh, kind of a meeting of the minds today because a while ago, I pretty much asked the question on Facebook and I got a variety of different answers. And the question was, can money buy big bucks? And I think that's what I want to have this podcast be about today is can money buy big bucks? And the first thing that I want to do is set some kind of ground rules, right? So in a high fence scenario, yes, obviously, if I wanted to shoot a, a 200-inch deer, I could go pay for it in a high fence, right? Do you, you guys yeah, agree? Uh, totally, 100%, yes. Okay, so um, that right there, is, we're not going to talk about that because that's a no-brainer. Yes, you can do that. Now, outfitters are, are something that I want to touch base on because, you know, again, that's, some outfitters are high fence, some outfitters are low fence, and for the low uh, fence outfitters, they have to manage their property for their clients, just like let's say uh, a private landowner anywhere else, to, to, you know, to try to get uh, quote unquote big bucks. So, I think the first thing that I want to talk to you guys about is what I call the big buck equation, and the big buck equation is this plus this plus this plus this or however many categories there are equal equal a big buck and for the sake of conversation i want to go big and i want to say 170 inches okay that's Woo. that's something that the the hunting industry and television and advertising focuses a lot on. And so I want to make this hard to accomplish. And as we all know, a uh, 170-inch deer is, for the most part, pretty rare when you talk about the nation as a whole and whitetail bucks as a whole, okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it to you guys now, and I'm going to say, what is the big buck equation? That's a heck of a question. Way to get us started. Very I'm gonna complex. A- I'm going to ask the vaguest question possible yeah. and need you guys to go into detail. Yeah, thanks. We appreciate that one. But, you know, there's so much that goes into it. And I think automatically and it's probably going to be a working equation as we as we talk it out here. Um, but the big three things that right off the bat have to be included in this is age, nutrition and security. Those three things are incredibly important to getting any deer to upper age classes and expressing their full potential, no matter where you're at in the country. Okay. So you said age, nutrition, and security. All right. So 
let's go into each one of these things and break it down even just a little bit further. Okay. So as we all know, and you know, if you guys, for those of you who are listening to this podcast, you've heard us talk a lot about, you know, on the land and legacy side, and even on the nine finger Chronicles side, we talk about, you know, if you want a deer with big antlers, you have to let them get a certain age, right? So in a, in a perfect world, in this world that we are creating, you know, to make this big buck, what kind of ages should we expect uh, a whitetail buck to get to before we can really start saying, hey, I think, uh, I think we should shoot him or, you know, where we start seeing this, this 170 class deer? I think that totally depends on, on where you're at in the country, um, first and foremost. Uh, but typically, just very average we're looking at three and a half year old deer expressing 70 to 75 percent of its antler growth potential and then at four and a half it's 85 to 90 but there's a lot of state or a few states i should say iowa even parts of northern missouri illinois kansas where once they hit four and a half they just keep going up to where you see some people passing deer till they're six and a half just because they know they're gonna they're probably gonna go over that 200 inch range but for the most part, if you're talking PA, Pennsylvania, three and a half year old may still only be a 110. So to try and get a deer over 170, like our goal is, I think it's going to be, it's <laughs> the age part is very tricky and it all just really depends on where you're at. And, and what he means is in relation to where you're at is how much nutrition is available for those deer to be able to you know, consume on a yearly basis, on a daily basis, get exactly what they need to express that potential, their full potential at three and a half. Or let's say Pennsylvania, um, since it was used earlier there, you know, that deer, he may not be getting um, everything he needs based on the the lack of food or the lack of management in an area or the closed canopy forest. So he, even though at three and a half, could be expressing 70, 75% of his potential, he may not have the resources that's going to allow him to do so. So even within age, they're still dependent upon nutrition as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, right. and, and the other thing, Matt, I think you said age, nutrition, and security. security. They all three are like tied together so much because for a deer to have the age, he needs security to where he can get the age. So I think it's all uh, same thing, the habitat speaking oh what do you know matt and i going back to habitat um but it's a question of going back to the pa where it doesn't have the nutrition but might not even have the security to make it of the age right right so would you say that you know in a weighted equation all of these things hold the same value so let's say I, i even added location down in here now so we have age nutrition security and location Right. So if we if we say each one of those things is 25 percent, they're all equal to the makeup of a big buck. Or does one thing is there one thing that is kind of trumps everything else or trumps a couple other ones? (laughs) I think I'm interested because I think you called this a BS session is because uh, Matt and I talked about this a lot and it seems like we're kind of going around and around, but I'm curious to know what his take is. I'm going to say age because here in the Ozarks, 
where you don't get a lot of 170 plus deer. It's always in an area to where it seems like, oh, okay, Mark Twain National Forest, somebody killed a 180. Well, the good chance, oh, where'd he kill it at? Oh, where he could get old. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm going to kind of divert for a second here, um, Dan, and ask your your addition of location onto that equation. Um, we We brought it up, but I think that location is one of those things that um man it's just not as important and i i probably turned some ears with that because even southern ozarks hey we can get deer over 170 arkansas we can get deer over 170 alabama deer on a general basis get killed over 170 there it is the other factors that i think influence Gotcha. In certain locations, if the majority or if more deer can get to that age class where they can, I guess, reach that 170 point, areas like Kansas or it's a one buck state or, or um, what's another one I'm thinking of here? Um, I, I, I'm going to jump in on that debate, if you will, and say location isn't important, but if we're looking at the quickest way to get to a 170, of course it's important because sure. you can go somewhere and say, okay, huh, look, I put the trail cameras out and there's already three deer over 170. Yeah, right. you, have, you have a better chance in certain areas for sure, but it doesn't mean that it can't happen. You just may have to be, let's say, allocating other resources to um, maybe nutrition in that area and then you'll be able to get that buck to 170 or, or a deer to 170, but... I think in many, many cases, most regions, if you have everything the deer needs, those three important factors, you can get deer to 170. Right. I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. Right. So let's say some of these high-pressured states or uh, states that, you know, when, when I say Michigan, when I say Pennsylvania or New York, those, those states are typically not a big buck state. Well, because there's mil, you know millions and millions of hunters who go out and shoot basically anything that moves right so yeah so the age class the age structure is lower do you feel that if some of these states like pennsylvania michigan i don't know let's say said no hunting for two years and let's just say this is you know all these questions are hypothetical this podcast is going to be all hypothetical questions the, sure. a, the age ratio you know there's no additional deer born, or I, I don't even know how to think say this, but no hunting for two years in New York, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, and every buck gets a chance to get two years older. Do do, do you feel that we get to start seeing? I mean, do those states have what it takes based off of just letting them age to get to more of a one seventy type rack on their head? Well, there's um, <laughs> yeah, another yes. complex question. <laughs> well, the, the thing that you have to, to weigh in is, okay, if I don't have as many deer hunters out there, um, then the amount of forage that's going to be out there is going to be less because now there's so many deer right. that are out there. So your, your food stress. supply yeah, yeah, is, no is food. less. Hunters play such an important role in managing um, wild deer herds. It's it's actually really, really important. So if you let that go for two years, one, you're going to have less food. But two, yes, I think you would see 
more deer because you're just allowing it's just a probability you're allowing more deer to get to an upper age class okay in which they can express more potential i would i would rather see i i you would get there quicker if you said rather than saying okay you can't shoot a deer for two years and the flip side of that is you can only shoot does you would get there a lot quicker gotcha yes gotcha okay for sure all right so now going back to this this uh, 170 mark, right? You said that at somewhere around three year old, you know, uh, three year old, they're reaching 75%, and then four year old, they're even reaching a higher, you know, what would what, you say, 80, 80 to 85%? 80 to 90. 80 to yeah, 90. 80. Okay. And are those, where are those statistics from? The QDMA has presented, and a lot of research supports those figures um, and those age classes representing or, or um, getting to express that much potential in their antler growth. A lot of um, captive deer herds have been studied and, and seen that. Okay. So then the rest from four-year-old and higher, uh, with the right nutrition and with the right security, uh, they have... Uh, an opportunity to reach uh, even higher than that moving into, let's say, five, six, seven years old? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Okay. So is there a magic age, right? If we're, if we're going to build a deer, you know, if we're, or if we have this 10,000 acres and we are, and there's one deer on it through its entire life that we're going to watch and it, uh, you know, year one, he's got a 120 inch rack. Right. And we're going to be like, I'm going to watch this deer until I, <laughs> until he hits 170. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, cause people do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. People, people do that. They watch a deer and they'll watch him and watch him. And then it's like, okay, well now he's 200 or he's 170. It's time to kill him. And so what do you think if, if you're going to build this deer, what, age is he going to be when we harvest him i'm going to let him get to at least five and a half okay if i have that much control that much acreage and and know what's being harvested what's not on a property five and a half would be the minimum okay but once you get up there in age class and you, you run into other things that just happen to deer of older age you know um they might be more susceptible to um I guess he may get in a fight and get his eye knocked out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah you have no idea. Or their eyesight goes down um, in upper age class. He gets deer. hoof rot and he starts. Yeah, yeah but I think, uh, and, and it all depends on the deer too, because I would want to watch that deer as, at two and say, okay, here here he is in two. Oh, he took a huge jump to get to when he got to a three and a half. Oh, okay, he took another huge jump at four and a half. Um, and maybe I'm targeting four and a half and older, but I see how big of a jump he made at three and a half to four and a half. I'm like, I want to see what he does from four and a half to five. And then from that jump, it's, it's a huge jump. And I say, okay, well, next year he may put on a lot more mass. And, uh, so I'm going to let him jump one more time or his jump from four to five wasn't that big. And so I'm going to go ahead and take him out at five and a half. Right. Okay. So let's just, I heard a stat once. I heard a guy who raised deer, and he told me, and maybe you guys can uh, tell me I'm right or wrong on this, but at the end of a deer's fourth year, a whitetail buck, at the end of his fourth year, the skeletal system stops growing, and it goes from growing to all the nutrition now goes to maintaining that, so it takes 
less nutrition to maintain than to grow. And then that's when in a, I guess, a perfect world, you see the biggest antler jump from the four-year-old to the five-year-old. When you say biggest antler jump, do you mean total inches? Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, I, I yeah, I guess total inches. That's what well, I heard. I, I mean, if if you if you look at the the stats, that I guess that we were talking about earlier, um, for a deer from three to four, go from seventy five to roughly ninety um, percent. That's a fifteen percent increase, and then from four to upper age classes, he's only got about ten percent more to grow. So, okay. to, to me, that that doesn't add up. Um, you know, it doesn't add up because again, from a two year old, um, he's, he's going to go from about 50% of his antler growth to a three, and then he's going to put on an extra 25%. He's going to increase that much. Now he might only be 50 inches and then increase 25% of that. Um, and, and put on another, what, 13, 14 inches, whatever it may be, but he's still, he's still increasing a larger increase than he would from two to three than he would from four to five if he maintains. And these are all averages too. You know, this is what over time a sample size has projected, you know, roughly 50% at two, roughly 75% at, at three and a half and so on like, and so forth. Like there's a lot of variables. Uh, uh, there may be a stretch where the three and a half year old bucks that are getting ready to make the biggest jump to at four and a half, that year is a horrific drought mm -hmm. and there's just right. no food. Right. And so... What do you know? It's another variable thrown into this mix. Right. Absolutely. And I've seen that on trail cameras firsthand where, sure. you know, leading uh, the the year after a drought, typically the year of the drought, uh, I don't see a decline in the antler growth. But the next year, I see a bit of a, a, a drop in total antler, like total inches antler. When I mean total inches, I mean across all the bucks that I check on trail camera, right? Sure. I've seen sure. I've seen them go down. Now, last year was a very mild winter, right? And mm -hmm. this year I saw a huge jump in antler size because of the mild winter and the access to food, right? Was was there and the deer really didn't have to struggle as much as they've they've done in uh past in the past. So, sure. you know, just, uh, one, one of the things to certainly consider is, and oftentimes it's because it doesn't fall within the hunting season, not that many people are focused on their deer herds at this time of the year, but late February, March is an incredible stress period for deer. There's very little forage available throughout much of the landscape, really woody browse, or or if you have winter wheat fields, there's a, that's about it. Um, and then at that point, their fat deposits that they've tried to store up through the wintertime are, are depleted. And if you get cold temperatures, late February, March, or ice, that's a very stressful time period. And then they have to basically get to a certain threshold um, coming out of spring just to basically rebuild or, or maintain, get to that point that they can now begin improving and gaining weight because um, antlers are secondary um, sexual characteristics. So they have to maintain their body at a certain level first and foremost, then the additional resources above and beyond that point goes into antler production. So if they come out of spring depleted, they have to build up and then produce antlers on top of that. Whereas if it's a milder winter or you have the resources available during that time in the habitat or, or standing grain, whatever it may be, they don't have to climb back up to that threshold. They can green up 
just boom, start putting on inches of antler and and go on. So that time period is really important um, for predicting. Now I wouldn't say predicting antler growth, but getting a good start to an antler growing season. Gotcha. So going back to the original question before we ranted out on that, uh, my friend is a liar is what you're telling me. The guy I know <laughs> is a liar, and I'm going to call him out, and I'm going to tell him you guys said that. All right, so um, five and a half years old, right? So we're going to let we're going to let deer get to five and a half year old years old yeah. on, on average, right? So yeah. now now we're going to talk a little bit about nutrition, and I, I have a feeling that this is also going to be that location, you know, where we talk about location as well. So he, we get, we, we have the ability to get them to five and a half years old. Now we need to talk about where this farm is going to be and the tradition, uh, the nutrition that's going to be on this farm to get them the, the, the nutrition that they need to reach their max antler potential. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Honestly, I think this is one another one of those those things that's okay. Location, um, you know, you have those hot spots across the country, and all that is really directed back to the land use of that area and soil Basically, type. Long term or short term benefits. Uh, it, it, you look at the landscape that Matt just said, the location where you typically see the big deer come from is where it's it's generally crop country. Um, there's a lot more food available. Um, where you see deer that aren't as big coming from is where the crop is timber, pine trees, oak trees. It may take 80 years or 60 years to do a harvest and versus a harvest every year or planting a crop every year that's just nothing but food um, in the form of soybeans or wheat or whatever it is. On a couple podcasts ago, we talked about is the value of food plots. And if you look at um, mature closed canopy forest per acre, they're producing about 50 to 100 pounds of digestible forage a year. And that's not much for one acre when you compare it to a soybean, um, which is anywhere from three to 6,000 pounds of forage. And you know, right there off the bat, you're going to have a, a big difference. And certainly in those areas based on land use, what the, how people are utilizing the land, that's going to predict a lot of, um, you know, I guess how big a deer can get if that's available to them or if it's not. Okay. So let's, let's say, let's take food plots out of the equation right now, right? We all know that food plots are a huge benefit to any piece of property and we're going to bring them back into the equation, uh, in, in just a little bit, but what kind of landscape are we looking at that is going to pr provide the best possible nutrition for a whitetail buck? Flat. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Flat. Yeah. Great answer, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, and that's all, folks. Have a good yeah. night. <laughs> Done. We're out of here. <laughs> um, that's a great question, Dan. And I, early successional habitat is the key for that. And that may be in the form of, let's say, Oklahoma, Kansas. If you've got um, tall grass prairies and you have a lot of forbs mixed in, those forbs are going to provide a lot of great forage for deer. And you may not have the food plots, the crops in that area, but you still have incredible amount of deer food. And then you look at a timbered area, 
that is um, that's been recently cut, a, a cutover or planted pines that's been thinned. You have regrowth in the form of brambles, um, in the form of a, other forbs that come back and grow. Those early successional plants are going to support and provide a large majority of the tonnage that those deer and other wildlife species are going to consume throughout an entire year. Gotcha. I think uh, that's basically the difference between when I say flat, typically that's crop country, but even Kansas has some hills. And I think the biggest difference in a roundabout way, or I guess trying to keep it short, is uh, where is the growth? Is it within a deer's reach or is it out of a deer's reach? Um, it, whether it's flat or rugged terrain, if it's in the form of a 100-foot tall tree, whatever it is, it's out of the reach. But if it's in the form of from the soil to four-foot tall, whether it be a native forb or soybean, it's it, deer is going to make a lot better living off that. Okay. Is there a specific – now let's throw food plots back into it, right? Is there a specific food plot – and you guys are the food plot kings. If you could only plant one food plot and not not to kill a deer but to give a deer the best possible nutrition, what are you planting? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Do we get to say multi-species plots or is it like one crop? I don't care. This is guys. <laughs> we haven't followed uh, anything on this podcast so far, so you guys can you guys can you guys can ask yourself a brand new question if you want, and go go from there. there this is go. not how I expected this podcast to go. I had all my notes ready too, and uh, and I was thinking, you know, Dan, I I saw how much conflict or debate was going on in that Facebook post, and we were the guests. He has to come on. He must want our careers to be destroyed. Yeah, <laughs> and you've just been hammering us with the questions. No, I'm gonna wait till the end of the podcast to do that. <laughs> okay, great. Now let's get through this uh, little bit of fame here first. Thanks. I, you know what? I, that's a my gosh, that's a very loaded question because it, I got to ask, how big are the food plots? Because if you tell me that it's less than an acre. I, I'm not even going to try soybeans because I know they're going to get hammered for the most part unless I can fence them off. But then that's not providing any forage during the summer. It's going to take a lot of seeds per acre to combat for the fact that it's a small food plot. And so if it's less than an acre, I'd much rather go with clover, something that can take uh, the browse pressure. Um, Matt, I don't, that's pretty no, I, much I my... totally totally agree on that. If you've got the amount of acres that you can you know, know or, or have the insurance that, hey, I'm going to have standing grain or forage with, through soybeans throughout the entire summer <clears throat> and know I'm going to have that standing grain in the fall time, man, soybeans are very, very tough to beat. But in many cases, you're limited by whether it is open ground or the ability to clear ground or the ability to have flat enough ground to be able to plant successfully. So again, that's a loaded question, but <laughs> I mean... Soybeans, they're very tough to beat, but again, in that small plot situation, like Adam said, they're easy to beat. They're very easy to beat because the deer are going to beat them down. Gotcha. I, I, that's why we, I mean, when you say we're the food plot guys, I guess we, we typically are more, I don't know, uh, a little bit different than some folks that I've seen just because we like to promote multi-species food plots um, just because you can provide forage basically throughout throughout the year with that planting um and and it's it, they all serve f to be a great food source at different times during the year and so <laughs> i would much rather do that but that doesn't really answer your question 
Yeah. And and while we're on the subject, I'll say I never want my food plots to be carrying my deer throughout the entire year because, again, we can have droughts. We can have um, other instances where crops are failure, maybe army worms or whatever. But if I have a good basis and I'm managing my native forage and providing a large percentage of the deer's diet in native browse, then I know my food plots are simply going to supplement and provide attraction and carry them through certain periods of the year, but basically draw them out during daylight hours to be able to harvest them. Food okay. plots to me and us is definitely a hunting strategy, but it can be an important part of anyone's management plan. Gotcha. Okay. So I, as you were talking, I was scrolling through Facebook and I found the question that I originally asked, right? And it got like almost 200 people comment on it. Okay, so and it was a variety of answers all across the spectrum. And here's here's what the question was. If I gave you one thousand acres in southern Iowa and a budget of fifteen thousand dollars annually for habitat improvement and food plots, how long do you think it would take you to kill a buck with a bow over one hundred and seventy inches? Do you really have fifteen thousand dollars to give us? <laughs> dude <laughs> sorry that's all i took out of that <laughs> i was thinking man why does he want to leave that job is this where yeah. I, is this where i edit in a lane and legacy uh commercial for you guys <laughs> yeah, yeah there you go <laughs> boy i'm gonna sound really cocky and probably in this answer but i'll first say now it sounds great but if you got the thousand acres and you had three terrible neighbors or a bad road system that went right through the middle of it that would definitely be uh, a hurdle you would have to overcome. But if you were to give me a thousand acres with the ideal situation and fifteen thousand dollars, if they're, <laughs> I would be shocked if we couldn't do it in <laughs> in a few years. Right, right. And, and the reason for that is we go back to that big buck equation, and we think about the age structure in that state or that portion of the state. We think about um, the nutrition that's available in that area. And we think about the security features. Um, you got CRP, you got wooded draws that can hold and get deer to those upper age classes. Yeah. To me, it's not necessarily a matter, even if the $15,000 wasn't in that, that equation, to me, it's a matter of, can I kill the deer that are here? Because I know that that 170 inch benchmark is likely running around on the property. It's not a matter of me managing and producing it, if you will. It's a matter of me killing it. And there's yeah. a big difference between having them on your place and killing them. Right. Absolutely. Yes. I, I think that's, that's kind of what Matt and I debated the whole time. Whenever you mentioned this a couple of weeks ago about doing this podcast was of course, money can buy big bucks, but it's really knowledge an understanding of the landscape to consistently kill those big bucks. Um, and keeping it in mind, like for me, when you say a thousand acres in, in Southern Iowa, how long is it going to take? I think if you look at any thousand acre chunk or a lot, basically any chunk that's got trees on it or CRP or whatever, there's probably a good chance there's a really good deer in that area. But if you took a thousand acres in South Carolina or Florida, uh, even the Ozark mountains where we're from, there's not many 170s running around. Yeah. 
Yeah. And again, it's most likely because of those other factors in that equation. But I basically, I think the to answer the question is you could do it quicker in Southern Iowa than you can do it in other places. Does it mean it's not possible in other places? Obviously, because it happens every year. But the time and the resources may require more money or a longer time frame to accomplish that goal. And what's the fun in that anyway, Dan? Right, right. Again, again, (laughs) I would probably be the hypocrite right now. Let's say I hit the jackpot uh, tonight or tomorrow whenever they draw it, and although I don't play the lottery. But if I did and I won, you know, $40 million and I could buy the best possible – I go to whitetailproperties.com or whatever whatever their website is and I just kind of – scroll through it hey i want to buy this piece right here you know i spend five million on a primo piece of ground in in iowa you know i i may not be good at hunting i may not know shit about planting food plots or habitat improvement but i could pay someone to do it or if i learn it myself and do it myself i still have you know killing like you said killing them and having on them having them on the property is two different things. So here's here's where I here here's where I I throw kind of my two cents in. And I feel that if I had the money and I could buy a a primo piece of ground, right? In whether it was established or I had to put two or three years worth of work in it to get, you know, those five and a half year old bucks on the piece of property, right? I feel that if I had the money to plant a 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 acre food plot of let's say standing corn and I put a shooting house on it and I wait till late season to go and muzzleload hunt it that at some point, you know, and 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 there is a there is also the in this is luck, right? The you and the deer have to cross paths paths at some point throughout a season in order for you to even get a shot out on it right so i have a feeling that i could just sit in a shooting house and wait for late season when all these deer start piling out of the timber and i would have a very good chance of killing the top tier bucks on these properties once oh, i locate I them with, with trail cameras and i just so i am a firm believer that money can buy you a big buck if if you go to let's say Iowa or Illinois and you just blow money on a piece now that takes some of the fun out of it because I would definitely want to manage it and like I would I think it would just be cool to have a chainsaw for a day and cut down like 40 trees a day and all you cut down is 40 trees while you cut down redwoods they're big ones <laughs> see you guys are talking shit on my own podcast to me about <laughs> About habitat improvement, and I don't know anything about habitat improvement. <laughs> you you realize that's why we were the first ones to come on the podcast because he has no idea what he's talking about. You know, that's right. Yeah, absolutely, I don't. <laughs> I would say one hundred percent. I would back you up on most of your statement there. What I would okay. say is, if you have an unlimited budget and you're just throwing money at it, that you could go into a lot of places in the U.S. outside of Iowa and Illinois and just buy a huge chunk of land and pour money into it and plant food plots and do all kinds of habitat stuff and get bigger deer than the neighborhood has. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's possible anywhere. Okay. All right. So now we have genetics, and I want to talk a little bit about genetics because 
there are farms that I've hunted, even in Iowa, that even had very low pressure, right? And if our magic number, let's say, is 170, um, that no matter how old the deer gets, if it's going to be an eight-pointer its entire life, there's a good chance it's not going to hit 170, right? So how how big of a role do you guys think that genetics in a specific neighborhood plays into this whole thing? Great question. And I think I'm, I'm going to go to um, expression of the genetics because, again, just like that Pennsylvania, we'll go back to that that scenario. There's been 170s killed out of Pennsylvania. And how do we know that some of the 10-pointers that are 4.5 or 5.5 that get killed out of Pennsylvania don't have the possibility of getting to that 170 mark if they're, you know, if they may only reach 140, but their genetics would allow them to if if they had the resources, the nutrition available to get there, to right. express that. And I don't think there's a way to measure the lack of expression or the lack of reaching the full potential in an individual deer, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, it's important, but I think making sure that the resources are there is is more important than, I, than, than trying to think about the genetics that are in place because everyone talks about genetics, but how do they measure them? How do they, how do they, they measure, you know, a four, four and a half year old deer um, that's only a 140 as an eight pointer and doesn't get any bigger. Um, how do they know that there's not other internal things going on in that deer that's limiting that deer? It might have the genetics, but just can't express it. Right. Yeah, I, I think, you know, for me, I've always heard, well, the Iowa deer, Northern Missouri deer are a different subspecies than, than Southern Missouri deer. And I've heard that, heard that even this year, I've heard it. But when we look back Whenever there was very few deer in Missouri, the the herds that they used to restock the state were in southern Missouri. So a lot of the northern Missouri deer still have the same blood, same genetics that southern Missouri deer have, but they're significantly larger because they have the nutrition available. Right. Even even with body sizes, not even just antlers, just the body sizes increase more, and that's that's a, a factor of nutrition and, and basically the latitude in which they fall um, across the United States. Okay. So let's – I want to go to the opposite side of the spectrum right now. Let's say I had I, – I still have the 1,000 acres. I buy the 1,000 acres of, of – you know, that is 100% secluded. I have the $15,000 to – throw at it annually for habitat work and food plots and whatnot is there a state that is on the opposite side of iowa to where man i would really be struggling to ever get a boone and crockett deer in this state even if i did have the money and i did have the time and energy and in surface area to put on uh, on a piece of property i think so yes uh Florida comes to mind, South Carolina. Um, I, I guess the, the coastal regions of, of Georgia, South Carolina, and, and Florida would come to mind. J honestly, the, the, the deer sizes are much smaller. But outside of that, I, I can't think of very many areas, if done correctly, 
and promoting native forage, no matter what the soil condition is, there's been great research to support this, that no matter what the soil type is, the native forage is still going to provide its, um, you know, crude protein levels, which is meets the minimum requirements that deer need to express their full potential. So no matter where you're at, if you're in the northern portion of Georgia in the Appalachian Mountains, you can still, if you're promoting the right forages, produce great, great deer and get them to reach their genetic potential as you would in Iowa. Right, right. No matter the soil. And you can throw in the whole feed them like if i had endless endless dollars i could literally feed my deer all year round with supplemental feeding yeah texas comes to mind right right okay so now five and a half years old right we've we talked about that now what state you know if hypothetically best chances for a booner what state are you guys going to have your thousand acres in southern missouri baby (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to stay home. I, I But I'm totally different than a lot of people. Yeah, sure. If I'm just on the market and I'm ready to kill big deer, I'm going to Iowa. Okay. But right. what's the fun in that? I like growing. I'm not, I like the challenge of trying to grow them here at home. Well, I, we really don't care what you think, okay? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got 40 trees to cut in a day, okay? Lay off me. <laughs> hey, I, I had to take a couple breaks. Yeah. <laughs> The Snickers bar and water was calling his name. That's right. That's right. So, you know, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry for me. It's a toss up between um, Kansas and Iowa. Um, Everyone. I mean, those those two states are just amazing. I love the scenery that they provide, um, the land use and the, the ability to manage those properties in a way that that we typically would prescribe or recommend for a client. Man, you have great opportunity to do that in both of those states, but not to overlook Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Yeah. yeah, Oklahoma's I, I, incredible. If you were to ask me, and I'm just going to tell you what I, I, okay, I'm looking, I'm looking to start an outfitting business, and I'm wanting to get as many big deer as possible. I'm going to Southern Iowa, or probably Kansas, but a state that's really starting to come up is Oklahoma. Yeah. I think I think it's like over thirty two hundred plus inches this year alone right um so i would definitely those three would be my go-to states you guys you know iowa used to be the sleeper state iowa is no longer a sleeper state you guys think oklahoma is the new sleeper state potentially yeah i honestly and that kind of gets into conditions of okay what's the weather been like what's the the climate been like because there's some portions that can be very arid um but I think if you've got great growing seasons and good temperatures during the uh, the fall time to get deer on their feet moving, man, that's that's an awesome opportunity to kill some giants out there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're in agree. Let's just, for sake of not going deeper into the rabbit hole, a five-year-and-a-half-year-old buck in southern Iowa on a 1,000 acres, right? Okay. That's the dream. That's yeah. the dream. Okay. Now, let's you know, have you did you guys ever play the video game Sim City when you were younger? I no. No, we were cutting more than 40 trees when we were 5 we years were old. We were chopping oh, wood, yeah. man. Here we go. <laughs> Jeez, here we go. You know, 
You know, Iowa had a nerd, nerd alert. Yeah. Nerd alert. Oh, Paul Bunyan. You, <laughs> you know, Iowa and Missouri had a war like back in the early 1800s. Is this the start of the second one? No. Well, oh, okay. Missouri, Missouri, the people from Missouri threw dynamite across the Iowa line, and then the uh, people from Iowa lit it and threw it back. Oh, nice, huh? Funny. Yeah. That, yeah, my grandpa told me that joke, and I never laughed at it either. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I wonder if people have literally tuned out of this podcast yet. <laughs> I don't know, but they will after this joke. That's you know right. how we know that the toothbrush came from Iowa? Oh, here we go. Because uh, if it was anywhere else, we'd call it a teeth brush. Yeah. Yeah, that's oh, not the I, first time someone's said that joke on this podcast. Oh, dang it, man. Yeah. Hey, well, Dan. we got great dad jokes, and we're not even dads. You know? <laughs> Dan, I think it was about the time when, early in the podcast, when you said I was going to put my two cents in, yeah. that's when they actually checked out. Yep. So that's we right. lost them at that point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys are assholes. Anyway. <laughs> I'm, I'm in my head right now. I'm rethinking this entire thing. <laughs> well, when you invited us on, we thought, all right, he's trying to take us down, but we're going to take him down with us. <laughs> Two heads are better than one. That's right. That's right. Okay. So we got this farm is now in anyway, Sim City. Anyway, this video, <laughs> <laughs> this, this video game, you could build cities, right? You build houses and commercial spaces and roads yeah. and everything. All right. So oh, I'm aware of it. Yep. 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 So here's the deal. We're going to build. Now we're in Iowa, right? On this, on great soil. We're going to build the perfect farm. What does the perfect farm in your guys's opinion look like? Oh man. Wow. Even more loaded. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. That's, uh... Lots and lots of grass and wildflowers and early secession, uh, lots of shrubs, um, plum thickets and things like that. Then we've got tillable ridge tops, tillable ridge tops. I mean, in an ideal situation, we're not worried about making income. So it's just food and cover and water, uh, streams that are rocked bottom. So I don't have to worry about EHD as much, um, what else? Little water holes. Honestly, the, the for me, the big thing is is cover. If, and if you've got some topography mixed in with all of this, um, the, the relationship of cover to food and topography, that topography is going to really start bottlenecking deer as they're making their way from good cover to these food resources. And if we're, if we're leaving some, uh, well, probably a large portion of the standing grain, I'm going to be looking at, okay, if a deer was bedding here in this sanctuary and he gets up to, to feed um, and, and I want to bottleneck him, I'm going to look at that terrain and say, okay, to bottleneck him here in a transition area, I'm going to leave the standing grain over in an A spot. And I know that he's going to nine times out of 10 walk through that bottleneck. So really it's, it's the layout of the land and the, ter- the terrain and then the features that you're managing within that. Um, really are going to help predict and lay out the farm, make it that much more huntable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I hunt a farm that kind of has one of those locations, right? It is a big, fat pinch point that at some point that is inside corner of a cattle pasture and a bend in a river. 
and in that space there's where the timber pinches down hard almost every deer that i have on trail camera at one point in the entire year you know typically uh during you know the the late october to the last part of you know the end of november thanksgiving area these deer cruise through this pinch point every every day right not every deer every day but you know a deer are constantly going through this pinch point and um i think one of those on this property that we're building would be a huge plus yeah there's again like that's that's the terrain features and kind of how the the habitat work to your advantage and disadvantage of the deer and really ideally we'd have multiple of those throughout the property whether that may be us manipulating the timber um in a way or or creating an ideal area that's that's um great bedding cover that gets them to up and, and on their feet along this pinch point um like i said Hopefully, there's multiple of those throughout the place. I, I think it's hard to. I'm trying to while Matt was talking, try to wake, think of a way to describe this. But in an ideal situation, I don't want, I don't want it to look like I have okay, 100 acres of bedding here, a hundred acre food plot here, a hundred acre timber here, a hundred acres of this there. I would rather have five acres of food here, ten acres of bedding there five acres of timber here, uh, a two acre pond, a, I would really want almost like polka dots scattered around. If you were to just color coordinate each area. So timber is red and food plots are green and, and yellow is grasses or bedding and orange is shrubs. I would want it to look like glitter of all those colors fell out on the table. Yeah. Just like a, a shake Yahtzee, shake it up and, and throw it down on the ground. Yeah, okay. exactly. What, what's the benefit of that? More edges. Okay. More edges, the ability to, to find those edges and, and even uh, work, manage those edges and in, use edge feathering a little bit and basically steer deer. That's what the more edges you have, the, more, the better the ability to steer deer. Gotcha. So let's dive in a little bit because the original three categories were age, nutrition, and security. Talk a a little bit more about what your guys' opinion of security is. Habitat that allows deer to survive. um, Not just escape and hide, but survive in as well but surviving as well. So ideal situation, you have a lot of growth where a deer lives four four foot and down. And you have a lot of different types of vegetation within that scale of four foot and down. You have grasses, you have flowers, you have shrubs, you have blown over trees. Um, you have some hinge cutting, whatever it is, you have a whole mix of that within that range of four foot and down. Okay. Makes sense. Thick, nasty stuff, right? Thick, nasty stuff because they can hide in it. They're using their nose more than anything. So they're going to, they're going to hear you and use their nose to try and identify you. Um, so basically by using by having that much habitat they can hide 
and stay there and stay there and stay there until the last resort they have to get out of there. But if if they are safe enough within that, they don't have to leave. Okay. <clears throat> There's a lot of times when we're you know either driving around a farm or to another place and and you're looking at honestly how the deer are escaping and and what's that range in which they're getting up. Uh, you know, if, let's say you're on a buggy, they're getting up 150 yards away from you. It might be wide open timber, but sometimes even like in, in the best cover. And I've been to lots of farms that have got ideal cover from that four foot and down range and deer stand up. You see the tops of their ears and they'll crouch right back down Right. and you just drive on or move on. They have the cover and the ability, even if you were to enter it and go to them to try and bump them. They can get out of there because right next door, a couple steps away, there's more cover and more cover and more cover. That allows them to not only bed down securely, but escape securely too. So if you're bumping deer and they're way out in front of you, they're likely bedding in in the best cover, but they don't have the best cover. I guess that was kind of confusing, but you want them to be able to feel secure and you get within, you know, let's say, 50-ish yards or so without them blowing out. Um, That would be ideal. For example, when we're touring a property and we're going along and it's wide open timber, we can see the deer running out in front of us 100 yards away. Or more. Or more. But if they're in thick cover, you almost have to step on them sometimes. Or even if they do leave, you don't see them. Right. Because they've already left out in front of you. And the only way we know that is by we just toured a property not not long ago. And we walked from one property was thick grasses and shrubs and just nasty thickets. And we had no idea how many deer we were bumping. We saw tracks. Yeah, sign everywhere. There was sign everywhere. But then uh, we were meeting a guy and he was sitting at the other end. And we basically pushed out the, the farm. And he goes, did you see all, all those deer you pushed out? And we're like, no. And he goes, there must have been 30 of them. We had no idea. We went to the next farm that bordered it, open timber, open crop fields, and there was deer running two, three hundred yards out in front of us, and it, you could see them forever. So we'd much right. rather have the thick growth. And right. That that provides them with the cover and the security, and with, let's say peace of mind with within um, within that deer herd. That hey, I'm secure here. I'm safe here. I don't have to bolt and run and get the heck out of Dodge. I can meander or, or honestly, a lot of times they'll even loop back up and behind you and just come right back and squat. And right. you don't know that because you can't even see them. But that's quality security cover. Right. Okay. All right. So, you know, this equation is not just age plus nutrition plus security as we've already talked about, right? There's like sub-equations off of each one right? Mm, Uh, Where it's located, uh, how the terrain sits, what the soil's like, all this other junk that goes into it. So it's not as complicated as, um, or it's, it's a little more complicated than what we originally led on to. Now you guys are in the habitat improvement, deer management type of, you know, you live that every day with what you do for a living. So if a guy like me and what I'm kind of, I'm, I'm going to, I don't even know how to ask this question because I want to compare what we all see on outdoor television, right? We see these people going out and shooting giant deer every 
single year. And it's because they have what we just described, right? They have a a piece of a large piece of low pressured property with a great age structure. They have great nutrition and they have great security. You know, on all those things. Now, from your standpoint, you know, a lot of guys see that and go, hey, these guys have a lot of money to throw at it and they're killing big bucks because of it. But what a lot of people don't see is all the the work that goes into this property before the season even starts to be able to do that. Talk to us a little bit about that hard work that happens before you even step foot in a tree stand. To me, it goes back to <clears throat> probability. And of course, like you said, they've got a lot, many of them, not, not all, many of them have the ability to um, hunt very large tracks and you just have more deer, have more um, deer that are going to get to that um, 170 mark. And that's, of course, because of some of the, the um, standards in which they're holding out for through the years prior and just the number of deer on these places and the habitat improvements that hopefully they've been doing. Um, but what what you said was you see them killing great deer every single year. But what a lot of the shows don't show is all the time that are put in this that's put in the stand when they're not successful. Yeah. And I think a big part of the equation and that is how much time is allotted to be able to go out and not overpressure a farm and hunt basically every day of the season if they desired and make it happen in that manner. Again, that's probability of time in the stand. You put all those other equations of habitat improvement, large property, good age structure, and a lot of time in the stand. Hey, you've got a good chance of killing a great deer. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, what else do you guys want to add to this, right? So I guess first first of all, Matt, and Adam, I want to hear your own individual thoughts kind of as a overview or, you know, a wrap up on this. Can first, first off, can money buy big bucks? Well, you told me earlier, you didn't care what I thought. So is this, <laughs> is this permission to speak again? <laughs> so I would say, yes, money can buy big deer. But like I said earlier, it's going to take knowledge and the understanding and woodsmanship to kill those big deer. Right. Now, you could pay somebody to plant all the food plots or do all the work and then tell you and spend the time scouting and say, okay, go sit in this tree, of course. So, yeah, money can buy big deer and, and ultimately it could buy big mounts on the wall if you want it. Yeah. Um, for me, I guess the challenge, because how many of us actually have the amount of money that we can do all this not not many yeah. um and so the challenge is how much money is it gonna take to get the caliber of deer that i want that i would be proud of and then that goes with i don't have much money at all so <laughs> I, I i can't how am i going to make this work how can i get big deer when my budget is three hundred dollars in food plot seed and and a chainsaw and a drip torch like what, what can I do to get those deer? And that's kind of the challenge that I faced and still face today. I, I, I like that challenge, but maybe that's just me, me saying, yeah, I like this. I'd rather have it like this. But I would much rather try to find the, okay, what's the bare minimum to get the maximum potential? Gotcha. 
Yeah, I'm going to agree. Obviously, money can of buy. Course, right? Yeah, money can <laughs> buy big deer and big deer on a yearly basis. There's no doubt. But I'm going to I'm going to suggest that in areas that may not typically produce big deer, let's say timbered areas, which cover a large portion of privately owned property across the the country, if you manage your timber through TSI maybe government programs, which puts money in your pocket. Timber harvest. Uh, right. That allow you, if your timber's not in the state, to to be able to make money off of. But doing those practices, that's going to improve the cover, improve the wildlife value of those acres. And then get you to a point where you can do a timber harvest, which puts money in your pocket that you can put back into the property. Now you've got the opportunity to increase the impact that you have on the property, on the whitetail herd, and maybe achieve those goals. And that, to me, is an avenue that I hope a lot of people are looking into. When, we, again, we talk about closed canopy forest, man, there's just very little um, production in a wildlife standpoint that they typically offer. So if I, can, if I can make money off that timber, if it is mature enough, there's a market for it, I would highly suggest getting a credible logger in there to do that, put money in your pocket, you put it back into the property and manage it in a state that's most conducive to wildlife, and you're staring those numbers and those goals right in the face in a couple of years. Right? Uh, all right, all right, all right. You you uncorked the can of worms, so we're just going to keep, I'm going to stack on that of kind of what gets me excited. And, and of course, it would be awesome to get a thousand acres in southern Iowa and be able to just dump money into it. But Going back to what I just said prior to Matt speaking was kind of that, okay, what's the bare minimum that I can spend to still get great deer? But the other thing is how many people hunt on farms that are cattle farms or they're crop farms or they're timber plantations? And and so they have other hurdles to combat with. I grew up on a cattle farm, so it was right. like, okay, there's cattle, there's a cattle operation going on. That's not going to change. But I still want to have better deer hunting and better quail hunting, better turkey hunting. So trying to mix in the cattle with the deer, with the turkey, with the quail to where they're all benefiting and they're all reaching their maximum potential. And that's kind of that. That's the exciting thing for me is taking a farm that's not just recreational, but it's a working cow farm. Maybe it's a beef cow. Maybe it's a dairy. Maybe it's a, a crop farm to where they're harvesting a majority of the food and still trying to make it a world-class hunting property. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't think, I think most properties are, are underutilized in the fact that, you know, people just say, Oh, well that's, that's my cattle farm. This is my hunting farm. Hey, there's the opportunity to make both of those income producing and still have amazing hunting on there. So may think outside of that box and, and, See how that lane really could best be used to your benefit. I'm going to sound incredibly crazy when I tell you this, Dan, but if you were to say, okay, here's your ideal farm, build it, I still want cows involved. I know that sounds crazy, but understand. Like, so Matt and I are, are consultants, but we're also land stewards, and, and I believe that large herbivores or grazing was a huge part of the ecosystem that benefited not only small birds but benefited the whole system and benefited the land so trying to incorporate that is is what i really want to do so yeah 
I bet go. you didn't expect that. I didn't. Well, at the same time, though, you know, I, I hunt. The farm I hunt is a – my main farm is a fully operational – I mean, they have cattle and they have horses. Now, the horses, I don't even know what they have the horses there for other than to maybe keep the grass down so they don't have to mow. I mean, they just kind of do whatever they want, right? They're all over the place. And the deer – kind of avoid some of those places where the horses or the cattle are and that's almost a benefit for me from a strategy standpoint because i know that they're not going to walk through the pat right and through the middle of the pasture where the cows or the horses are they're going to take kind of a, a different route maybe a, around uh, around the, the pasture staying on the edge or in the timber a little bit so that might uh that actually helps me out a little bit so yeah from a strategy standpoint now let's see here you know a lot of the guys who listen to this particular podcast are you know the diy uh the diy strategy uh guys so is there you know we don't own our own properties we don't lease our own properties so habitat improvement isn't really something that's on our mind a lot just because we don't i mean it's it's not i mean we don't we can't plant food plots we can't do you know timber harvest or or stuff like that so what kind of things should we look for to go in and find a location i don't know or or do something to a piece of property that will maybe result in a buck maybe getting a little bit bigger or or I think improving I, the property? I, I, that's a great question, Dan. Um, and I think it's whether you're doing the work or not, whether you're out there grunting it out and cutting trees, planting food plots, or if you don't have that opportunity, it's still very, very important to understand what's going on and why someone would be doing that. Why would someone be cutting trees? And then how are the, the wild, what's the wildlife going to respond? What's how, as a result of the trees being cut, should I hunt this area? A lot of state lands, a lot of um, national forests either get prescribed fire or have those periodic timber harvest. And there's such a strong, obviously, relationship between the land, land use, and the wildlife. So if you're a guy who's a DIY hunter on state lands or, or public land, knowing what that means when, when, a, when a, you see logging trucks coming out of your, your hunting area, you need to know, okay, down the road, what's going to come back? Is that going to be beneficial? Most likely, yes. And when is that going to be beneficial? When are the wildlife going to be using it so that you're in there at the right time of the year to be able to hunt it and hopefully wrap a tag around that deer? Whether you're implementing it or not, it's extremely important to have the knowledge of what's going on, what's going to come back, and then how the wildlife is going to respond to it and how you can best use it to your advantage in a hunting strategy. Now I'm going to piggyback on that and say, you know, you're in public, you're hunting public ground. And for me, the strategy is all about security. Now you could have, and hear me out on this one, cause you probably, maybe you thought it was food or something else, but if you have a hundred acre food plot or a ag field and there's no security around it chances are deer aren't going to be there during daylight hours so it doesn't matter if they're going there at night you can't hunt them um so it's finding the security 
And sometimes on public ground, the security is in the oddest places. It could be the road ditch or the little strip of timber that doesn't look like much. But since it doesn't look like much, that's why the deer have now figured out that it doesn't get walked through. There's not as much human scent or predator scent in that little strip of timber. So they've associated that as the safest place, even though it doesn't look like much. So that's what I always based my hunting strategy off of on public ground was finding the securest location to where there was better chance of seeing a deer on its feet during daylight hours. Right. And, and that, that area may not have the best cover either, but it's the security feature. We're talking about sanctuaries. We want good cover and security, but the two things go hand in hand. What Adam's talking about is strictly security because sometimes the areas with the best cover have the most pressure, but it's finding those areas that get overlooked and then hunting them. And that's where a lot of deer seek the security. And, and it could be the place that's right next to the shop where there's trucks and people in and out of there all day. But for some reason now the deer have associated those people with a non-threat. So they'll bed in, they're a, basically in turkey world, you call them a yard, a yard bird, but it's a, it's a yard deer that's just hanging out in the, in the thicket that's a quarter acre that's right next to the shop. Gotcha. Okay, so now, as expected, this uh, this podcast really didn't have uh, a topic that that we stuck to the entire time, but that's why we call it a BS session. Uh, kind of going back to this magic number one seventy, right? Every, you know, everybody talks about booners. You know, booners got to put down a booner. This guy put down a booner. Yeah, he's a great hunter because he put down a booner. Um, okay, whatever. But what percent? of deer that make it to let's say five and a half years old i don't even know if you guys have a, a data for this or just maybe a yeah. best guest guess what percentage of deer that hit that magic num number of of five and a half or older actually hit 170 yeah i don't think there's a number to put out there but i'll just say if you're saying 170 is like the superior genetics, yeah. how many people have the genetics to make it to a professional athlete? Not yeah. many. Yeah. I think, I think it's very similar. Um, they have superior genetics to be able to do those things, whether it's baseball or basketball. Same thing with deer. There's not a lot that have the, it, they don't have it in them to the make potential. it to one. So, yeah. to make it to 170. Yeah, and if you're asking across the entire Whitetails range, that no way to, I don't think, compute that number, but it's a it's a small fraction of, of deer. Again, you're going to have pockets that have, you know, the majority of a five-and-a-half-year-old deer may reach that, but um, a lot of areas, they won't hit that. You'll have, like Adam said, those, those if you will, freaks of nature that just kind of pop up, and you're like, oh, my gosh, how did that happen? Well, you know, he just, he found a place, he got, he got old and he had good nutrition, um, and he hit that mark. Um, but I don't, certainly not to my knowledge, there's not that number out there, um, that basically research that would be, um, credible, but if so, it would be, it'd be a pretty small number. I mean, they're, they're, that's why they're called trophies. I mean, cause they, they don't happen every single day. Right. Um, and again, not every area, not every state has the age structure that would even allow 
for that to happen on a regular basis. There's, there's probably some portions of um, some states that, yeah, I, I've got the resources available to do that, but the age structure just isn't even there. Yeah. 170, right? Again, magic number. Everybody wants to shoot a booner, booner, booner. Maybe. Well, yeah. After this podcast, I'm shooting a fork at horn next bow season. <laughs> Good for you, buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the, but, you know, the hunting industry has a lot to do with setting these unrealistic uh, expectations for hunters, right? Like if, if, you, if you don't know any better and you watch outdoor television, uh, you're going to think, oh, my God, I, I want to shoot a booner. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out, and I'm not going to shoot a deer until I shoot a 170-inch a deer. And obviously, we, we know through this conversation and just being, uh, I don't know, good listeners and, and, and knowing that those animals are, are very rare to not only from a genetic standpoint, but also to from a management standpoint to get one to live on your property and stay on your property, right? So do you think that for hunting overall, this is and this is another curveball in this conversation. For, for hunting overall, do you think that the hunting industry, the products, advertisements, the television shows do more good for hunting or bad for hunting? This is this is a BS. That was our session. careers right here. <laughs> yeah, no, this seriously was the bust. I don't know if anyone can hear it, but it's backing up, getting ready to roll over top of beep, us. Beep beep beep. <laughs> Oh, you it, know what? It hit me I, a long time ago. Yeah. Well, you're I, still around. I would say, mm, mm, mm. I'll say it. I, I Yes, I, I mean, we're not scared to say it. We say this a lot uh, behind the mic when the microphones aren't on. But yeah, <laughs> I, I would have to say that I think there is we've come to a point where the expectations and not just the expectations, but the pressure. I think might be the right word of of shooting a deer that's not the caliber that you see on outdoor television is a bad thing to where a new hunter coming onto the scene, maybe it's a 13-year-old boy, maybe it's a 35-year-old guy who for some reason he's just got the urge to pick up hunting. Whenever you watch somebody else doing something on television and they're killing a giant deer and you're like, Oh, that's cool. But on my farm, I don't have them. I'm going to go out and shoot a, a young deer or the first buck. But then the pressure of somebody may say, and I can't believe you didn't let that deer grow. Dead deer don't grow. I think that's had a, a huge negative with it. Right. Right. To me, again, you're, you're, it's almost like you're shooting for the stars out of the gate and yeah. that could be a frustrating thing to do. Um, now do I think, I didn't think setting goals is, is important. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean as a, as a novice or a beginner that you need to have that or, or even as a seasoned hunter, a veteran hunter that you have to achieve that. No, it, it's a predetermined individual goal that every person should have. Mm -hmm. You know, some people that want to shoot a 170, man, go out and get it. Absolutely. But there's other people who want to go out there and get meat on the table for their family or just enjoy venison as is and go and do that that's the that's the sport of hunting it's not necessarily a, a trophy um as corny as it sounds trophies in the eye of the beholder it, it, yeah it really is and and i firmly believe that 
Um, like Adam said, there, there's a lot of pressure right now put on this this 170 marker or a booner or or a four and a half year old deer. I can't. T- I've shot more bucks in my life that aren't four and a half or older. Right. Then I mean, to me, you've you've got to start somewhere. And even again, if you're an, if you're a veteran hunter and you're 60 years old and you want to shoot a two and a half year old buck, man. All the power to you because you have that opportunity, you have the ability, and I'm not going to knock you for it. Go out and do it. What I what I want out of out of hunting or whatever the industry does, at the end of the day, I hope the one thing it does is get people to buy tags and go hunting. Absolutely. That's it. Absolutely. Uh, and and I think that for me, there was a time in my life where at 20 years old or whatever, I would get irritated at my neighbors for shooting young bucks and we get downright mad. And now at 30, I kind of look here and I go, you know what? As long as he's buying tags and going hunting and trying to get other people into it, good for him. I'll tip my cap to him because if I sit here and bash my neighbors to a point where none of them want to go hunting or whatever, at some point, I'm the lone wolf out here hunting, then there's a better chance that in a big picture that somebody's going to vote out my rights of hunting. Right. right. That's that's for sure. Um, yeah, that's just the, the truth of it. You know, we as hunters, we got to lock arms and say, hey, you're a hunter. I'm a hunter. It doesn't matter what your standard is, but just know that you're a hunter and I'm a hunter and that's what matters. Yeah, I think of another example um, that I used to be very anti-crossbow. Um, and up until a few years ago, Missouri only allowed uh, basically handicapped people to use crossbows, but they made it legal for everyone. And at first I thought, oh, that's, I hate that. But now I look at it, I'm like, you know what? Now there's a bunch of kids who are able to go hunting during bow season yeah. because they can carry a crossbow. So I think it's awesome now. Right. And a lot of, a lot of our, our clients or folks who reach out to us um, for consulting – Honestly, a large majority of them are very family devoted and they say, you know what, I I want the opportunity to to harvest an older age class buck, but what I really want is a lot of animals on the farm so when I can bring my kids out here, I know that they're going to have a good time, they're going to see deer, they're going to have the opportunity to harvest deer. And yeah, I, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to have my shot or two or, you know, throughout a season at that mature buck, but man, that, that's, that's an awesome goal in my opinion is looking beyond just, you know, an age or a number of, of inches of antler, but looking to enjoy wildlife, observe them and, and share that moment, um, with your kids or, or even a neighbor's kid, whoever it may be, or just a new hunter. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, I mentioned it earlier, but for us, Matt and I, we've been consultants now over a year with our own company, Lane of Legacy. And it, if anybody has priced consultants, whatever, I think I, I kind of pride ourselves on being a more affordable consultants because of the fact that we get to be on more properties that way. There's more people that can afford us. And the more people that we get to interact with and the more farms we get to see, hopefully we get to spread that message or reinforce that message with them about improving the habitat, leaving a legacy of, of improved habitat for future generations to enjoy. But in the process, we're going to have more animals, and hopefully we can introduce more hunters. Right, 
right? And I'll add on something on that just real quick, and that is, I get excited when my friends kill deer, and any any deer, right? Whether it's a doe or a big buck or a forky horn, like you're going to do uh, this upcoming year, but <laughs> with a recurve, <laughs> with a recurve, hey, that's a win right there, bud. But when I I shouldn't care. I think we get caught up in caring too much about how an animal is harvested and where it was harvested and what the inches are when we shouldn't care at all about those things. The only thing that we should care about is that this person harvested a deer doing what they love, period, end of story, and not about all the other crap. Like the details are fun because that's what makes a good story, but caring about like, oh, he shot it in Iowa. Of course that buck's bigger. Or, you know, he shot it on private ground. Or or he shot it with a crossbow. Or he, who gives a shit? If you did it legally, it's all good in my book, man. Yep. I'd go. Bingo. You, you, truer words have never been spoken, Dan. <laughs> I just plagiarized that entire sentence. <laughs> but anyway, gentlemen, I hear my kids screaming. So that brings us to the end of this podcast. And, <laughs> daddy uh, duty. Daddy duty, right, right. So, hey, guys, I really appreciate you taking time to uh, come on the podcast. And basically, I don't even know what I'm going to title uh, this episode. It might just be Nine Fingers plus Land and Legacy equals skip this podcast. <laughs> Maybe call it 29 Fingers. 29 Fingers. Hey, that's a good idea. I might have to, I might have to roll with that. I might have to roll with that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Huge shout out to Adam and Matt for coming on the podcast and uh, taking time to chat a little bit about the habitat side of things on whether or not money can buy big bucks. And I would love to hear what your thoughts on this topic are as well. So go to the Nine Finger Chronicles Facebook page. And on the post that mentions this podcast, I would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, continue this conversation there. And, uh, you know, I'm just curious what everybody else has to think. I know my opinion doesn't mean anything. So, uh, again, I'd love to hear what you guys have to say. Huge shout out to all of you who take the time to download this podcast, who listen to it, who are, I guess, customers basically preferred customers of the podcast who listen to it every week thank you thank you thank you huge shout out to all of the partners of this podcast exodus wasp gearhead ozonics lone wolf bighorn outfitters and i think that's it one two three four five six seven ripcord arrow rest yeah ripcord there you go thanks to all of those who support this podcast please go out and support the companies that support this podcast because uh, honestly without them this does not happen go to social media and find the sportsman's nation podcast network on facebook and instagram please go like it go share it uh, tell your friends about it uh, there is a lot of buzz being generated about this and uh, the more that we can do 
on that end, the more that we can do as far as putting out content is concerned. So uh, the more that you guys share it and talk about it, the more that we can do on our end to provide you guys good content and uh, go to iTunes, leave a review or go to wherever you download your podcast and leave a review. And I think that's it, guys. So the seasons are kind of winding down for everybody but if you are either going into the timber to do some habitat work to take down or move some tree stands please wear your damn safety harness have a good week